We just did, right? But anyway, we don't do that. But what happened was our piano player called off today. Joshua had to teach down there, so neither one of my piano players are ready. And um, I thought instead of singing a cappella, maybe the Lord put that on my heart for a reason. And so today I sang that. I just love that song. What a tremendous message. Kind of goes along with what we're talking about, grace. And uh, grace is important when it comes to giving, isn't it? Today we want to continue our series, A Cheerful Giver. Last week we talked about some things, but before we get into the summary of it all, let's turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. We don't have a very long time. We'll try to move along quickly today, but 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. In that particular passage we read, But this I say, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. God loveth a cheerful giver. Last week we noted the parallel that God makes between farming and giving. And basically we said that the sowing and the reaping process is often a very long process and a very difficult one at times. It's a it's hard work to be a farmer, to farm the land. And because God likens our giving to farming or sowing and reaping, we are to learn that giving is a process that, well, that God intends to be a major part of our life. No farmer says, well, this will take me a few minutes and be done with giving, or be done with sowing and reaping. The bottom line is, is that in our lives, as uh, even Mr. Wolf so adequately put it, it's been a lifetime work in his life and in his wife's life. It's been a constant and a continual. It's been a grace that God has exhibited in his life. And it's a grace that God must exhibit in our lives. So it's not just a part of our life. It becomes who and what we do. It's not just throwing a couple bucks in the plate on Sunday and waiting for God to bless. It's a process that requires a lot of planning and preparation, performance, patience, prayer, and ultimately some fruit picking. Now in verse 7 from the passage, we learn a couple of things as well. The Bible says, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. See, God is concerned about our hearts in giving. See, giving is a matter of the heart. And not only is God concerned with what we give, but he's concerned about how we give it. That's important to the Lord. He wants his children to purpose in their hearts to give and then to give cheerfully. See, God delights when we give cheerfully. He takes pleasure in us giving cheerfully. And then we also said that when it's all said and done, giving is not done independent of our Christian lives. Rather, it's a reflection of it. Giving is a reflection of our Christian life. And basically we're saying that our giving is, a, is directly tied to our relationship with the Lord. It's very important. And so because giving is such an important part of the Christian experience, we took the time to note some people who were commended for it. We noted that the Apostle Paul talked about the Macedonians when he shared their testimony with the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we read ultimately that he says, and this they did, talking about the Macedonians, not as we hoped, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. The Apostle Paul, we said, was not upset because they didn't give their money first. He was, uh, he was ex excited and he was amazed that how they gave, 
And he recognized because they gave out of their poverty and because they gave out of their lack, because they gave out of, out, of, uh, out of a heart of gratitude to the Lord and they gave far beyond their ability even to give, he said there's no doubt that they didn't just give their money, they gave themselves first. And you can't give like the people at Macedonia gave unless you first have given yourself to the Lord. And that's what the Apostle Paul noted. And that's the example that he used as he shared this information with the Corinthian church. And he said, listen, even as they gave first themselves and then everything else kind of flowed from that, I, I, I want you to experience that grace giving as well. I want you to give of yourself first. That's what every believer needs to do. And then the rest will follow gladly. Then we can be cheerful givers. So the giving exceeded the expectation even of the apostle. So last week we talked about or learned about the basis of giving. And we said the basis of giving was self. You give yourself first. It all begins with a willingness to give ourselves to the Lord and then the rest follows. This morning I want to continue our study and consider the blueprint of giving. The blueprint of giving. Again, we talked about the basis. Today we're going to talk about the blueprint. Uh, we're hoping to have some really extensive blueprints soon of our new facility. Hopefully it comes sooner than later. Unfortunately, it seems like it always drags on, doesn't it? But those blueprints will outline a number of things for us. They'll make things very clear for us. And let me just say today, I want to share the blueprint of giving. I want to talk about a couple of things. I want to consider the design and layout which is basically the overall picture of giving in the Bible. And then, before it's over with, I, I want to share the drawing and the lines. We'll get a little bit more detail going there. So before we get into this, let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we must move fast this, this morning. We're probably not going to get through half of what I wanted to, and that's okay. We'll get through what God wants us to today. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time together. Thank you for your people and their faithfulness. Thank you for the privilege that it is to be a part of this church family. Help us, Lord, now as we have taken some time to emphasize discipleship. We've taken time to emphasize giving. And Lord, today in our lesson, may our hearts be stirred. May in the message, may our, we, Father, find it in our hearts, Lord, to uh, have a great desire to be a cheerful giver. We'll thank you and praise you, Lord, as you meet our need. And Lord, if there be any that are without Christ, may they realize, Lord, the first thing they need to give is themselves to you. They need to surrender their heart, their life to the Lord Jesus Christ and be born again, saved, washed from their sin, and put on the road to heaven. Lord, help us today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So let's consider the design and layout very quickly. First of all, you have Adam. Right from the very beginning of time, we are introduced to a man. In Genesis 2.15, the Bible says, And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden and dressed it, to dress it and to keep it. See, man's purpose is defined there in that passage, chapter 2, verse 15. He's to fellowship with his creator, and he's to care for his creator's garden. He is to be the steward of God's substance and possessions. And that's exactly what you and I are. We are the stewards of God's substance and God's possessions. Everything we have is really God's. And God places us in this garden, so to speak, to care for his and to fellowship with him. And God issues a command to this particular man by the name of Adam in Genesis 2, verse 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. See, what we find here is that God permits Adam to freely eat of every tree in the garden except for one tree. There was that one tree that Adam was not permitted to eat of. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And God is basically saying to Adam, Adam, you as the steward of my heritage and laborer in my garden are permitted to satisfy your hunger and meet your every need by partaking of all these trees in the garden. However, there is that one tree, that one exclusive tree that is mine. You're not allowed to eat that one. That's mine. That tree is forbidden. So right from the beginning, we see that although God is a very giving God, He clearly defines what is His and what is off limits. Sadly, it wouldn't be long before Adam would take what was God's. And of course, we know that he would send the the whole world and all of mankind spiraling out of control into sin. So we see Adam right from the very beginning. Adam is given his, so to speak, and God's saying, here it is, by all means, meet your needs. But do not take that which is mine. Then we find, or run up history, we move forward in history to a man by the name of Abraham. Again, we're looking at the design and layout of uh, the overall picture. Here we find Abraham. He is chosen by God and he is called out from among his kindred and his country. This particular man, Abraham, obeys God. He's a Gentile at this point. He is not an Israelite. He is not a Jew. He is a Gentile. And God calls him from among his people his kindred, and his country, and says, go in search of a land in which I will give you. And God makes a covenant with Abraham, and he begins the Hebrew race. That is where the Jewish race comes from, is from Abraham. It was never, it did not exist before him. He is the father of the Hebrew race. And so he obeys God, the Bible says in Hebrews eleven eight by faith Abraham, when he was called to go out of a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. He didn't have all the answers. He didn't know where he was headed, but he obeyed God. Abraham, of course, because he obeyed God and because he went to a place where he had no idea where he was even going, he was obviously a, very, a man of faith. And we read about him in Romans chapter 4, verse 3, when it says, For what saith the Scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Because of Abraham's belief in God, because of Abraham's faith, it was that faith, that belief, was counted for righteousness. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? We believe, and because of our faith in Christ, we become righteous as well. He represents the believer in this dispensation. When you go back and you talk about Abraham, you're able to look at the New Testament believer, and you see a picture of the New Testament believer and his faith in the Old Testament. In Romans chapter 4, verse 16, we read, Therefore it is of faith, talking about salvation, that it might be by grace. To the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, talking about the Jews, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So the the New Testament writer, the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Abraham is the father of us all, as he speaks to the Romans, who are Gentiles. You and I, as a whole, are Gentiles. There's probably not that many Jews here. We now, if we've put our faith and trust in Christ, are Christian. Our first, our citizenship is heaven. We become the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. And so now, all of a sudden, 
when we look back at our faith, we will go back to our father, who is Abraham in the faith. He's the father of us all. Well, that's a very interesting truth, and ultimately it will yield some fruit to us as we go through our study. So now we find that we have this man by the name of Abraham, and of course he is the father of us all, by faith, of course. Doesn't mean that he was actually our father, our dad, but he was the father of our faith in a sense. He exhibited the kind of faith that we in the New Testament will have to exhibit in order to be saved. Now, this particular man, Abraham, he runs into a character. As a matter of fact, some things take place. Uh, his, his nephew Lot is, is, uh, heads on down to Sodom and Gomorrah. You may remember the story. The angels come to Abraham. They start to say to him, listen, we've heard the cries of Sodom and Gomorrah. There's so much sin over there in that place. We're going to destroy that place. But before that scene took place, another scene took place that was very important. Lot was living in Sodom and in Gomorrah. And all of a sudden, some neighboring factions came and attacked the city and took Lot away. Literally took him captive, took him and others hostage, and took the spoils of the cities with them. Abraham hears from a servant that Lot, his nephew, has been taken by these, these warring factions. He then assembles his servants, and he goes after Lot. He finds Lot and those, those enemies, he destroys them, and he returns back to Sodom and Gomorrah. Something interesting takes place, though. The Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 14, verse 17 through 20, And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Chedorlaomer. Again, after this slaughter, after he had rescued the, the captives of Sodom and Gomorrah and taken back the spoils, he goes, after he came back from that slaughter, Chedorlaomer and of the kings that were with him at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. And he was the priest of the most high God. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. Abraham gave Melchizedek tithes of all. What it's saying is he gave him a tenth. A tithe is a tenth. And Abraham came back from the, the victory and he had the spoils of, of the, the, the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. He had captured them, he had taken them, and he took the spoils of those, what, what those people and men had had as well. And he also had the people that had been taken captive with him. And he says, okay, Melchizedek, I'm going to give you a tithe of all of it. I'm going to give you 10% of everything that I've been increased here. So Abraham gives him a tithe or a tenth. Now listen, this is the first time in the entire Bible the word tithe is used. The first time. It's not been used up to this point. It's being used with Abram or Abraham here. One of the rules of Bible study is that, is that of the law of first mention. If you've ever taken a class on how to study the Bible, you'll learn this law. It's the law of first mention. And basically, the law of first mention states that the first time a word or a phrase or possibly even a doctrine is mentioned in Scripture, it will often define its use throughout the entire Bible. Well, there are exceptions to that rule I'm well aware of, but they are exceptions and not the rule. So for the most part, almost all the time, when you see something mentioned for the first time, it is very significant and very important. This is no exception to that rule. Therefore, the first mention of the tithe here and its association to Abraham is going to prove to be very significant to you and I as believers today in the New Testament church.
we continue to read concerning this Melchizedek. We find in the book of Hebrews, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, the Bible says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation, listen to the titles that are used now for Melchizedek, King, capital K, of righteousness. And after that also, King, capital K, of Salem, which is King of Peace, capital K. He's without father, it says, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Here we have a man that Abraham gives a tithe of all to, who is the king of righteousness, king of peace, and has no beginning or end. That's pretty interesting to me. Now again, this description could easily be given to our Lord as well, couldn't it? We know that to be the case. Many Bible students, as a matter of fact, have identified Melchizedek as a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he was manifest in the Old Testament through this person, Melchizedek. Someone says, that's nuts, that's crazy. Wouldn't be the first time in the Bible we see those things. Now again, at the least, even at the very least, one could hardly deny the reality or the fact that Melchizedek is at least a type of Christ, represents Christ in the Old Testament. We couldn't deny that for sure. There's too many parallels. So what we find then and what we're to understand, I got to believe then, is that this person that Abraham gave a tenth part of all, was a picture of him giving it to none other than Jesus Christ. So we have this man giving a tenth part, in a sense, to the Lord, in type, at least, at best, or should I say least. That's kind of interesting to me. Now we move forward in time. We go from the beginning, Adam, we go from Abraham, the father of us all, and we move now to the law. Of course, you and I know that Moses, we've all saw the movie, right? Charleston Heston's, I mean, goes to the top of the mount. And Charleston Heston gets those tablets. No, I mean Moses, I'm sorry. And so he gets those tablets. He literally gets the law from God. And God uses his finger and he writes on those tablets the Ten Commandments. But you and I also know that if we've read the Old Testament at all, there's much more to the law than just Ten Commandments. There's a lot in there. I mean, there's a bunch of these kind of rules and regulations and dietary laws and worship type things, uh, you know, religious type things, all kind of different stuff. How do you worship and how do you do the tabernacle and all that? I mean, it was just, there's so many things in the law. But God gave those to Moses and now he shares those with the people. The people placed themselves under the law. They said, we will do what God says. We will obey the law. We will follow after his statutes and his word. And in that law, we find what? The tithe. In Malachi 3, verses 8 through 10, the Bible says, Will a man rob God? He speaks to the Israelites and he says, Yet ye have robbed me, but ye say, Wherein have we robbed thee? The Lord responds in tithes and offerings. Ye are cursed with a curse, for ye have robbed me, even this whole nation, bringing you all the tithes into the storehouse, 
that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there, are not, that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Again, in the law, the tithe has now been planted or placed. See, the principle of the tithe that Abraham had passed down to his children, Isaac and Jacob, right down the line, was now included in the law of Moses. They were required to tithe, and they had to give in a number of other ways as well, on top of that, through their offerings and their sacrifices that were made at the temple even. They were required to do so. Interestingly enough, though, remember, the tithe is now part of the law. So we see that tithe following us through the law. Now, we turn to grace. We turn to our day and age, dispensation of grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. The Bible tells us, Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Again, notice the very similarity of our particular passage in 2 Corinthians with that of 1 Corinthians 16. He says, As God hath prospered him. And he says, Lay aside that which God hath prospered you on the first day of the week. Guess what day it is? Today is the first day of the week. One of the reasons, the New Testament believer does not meet on Saturday, which is the Sabbath. In the Old Testament, they were required to have church, so to speak, and meet on the Sabbath. They weren't allowed to do anything on the Sabbath. They couldn't work, they couldn't exercise, they had to rest on the Sabbath. That's part of the law. But see, when Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again, the, the church changed a little bit. We're no longer meeting on the Sabbath, but we meet on the first day of the week, Resurrection Day. Jesus rose on the first day of the week. And now we, measure, we, we come together on the first day of the week to worship the Lord. And ever since the New Testament came in force, the death of the testator took place, his blood was shed, he paid the price for sin, he opened up the door to salvation to all by grace through faith. Ever since then, church has been held on the first day of the week. And one of the reasons we know that for sure is because that's when you're to gather that which you're to give. You don't give from home. They didn't have machines or the internet or some kind of ATM or any kind of check cashing thing that could snap across town and leave their stuff there at the church. They didn't stop by on the way to work that morning to leave their, their funds from their, their gatherings that week. No, they met as a church on the first day of the week and therefore they brought their tithes and offerings with them. Now the Apostle Paul emphasizes that phrase as God hath prospered him. Giving is proportionate to God's blessing in your life. That's important, isn't it? How blessed are you? 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7, our text today, says, But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. We're talking about New Testament giving now. We're, we're, we're getting the blueprint. We're looking at our blueprint. And, and from our blueprint, we're trying to understand the design and layout, the general idea of giving through the history. And here in the dispensation of grace, we note that in the New Testament, this is interesting now, God does not identify the specific amount that New Testament believers are to give. He doesn't do that. Someone says, whoa, 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 what about the tithe? Hold on, we haven't got there yet. 
but he doesn't mention it specifically. He doesn't say to a New Testament Christian, thou shalt tithe. You say, that's crazy. What? I thought you said we're supposed to tithe. Well, hold on, let me explain this thing. Why would God have to tell us to tithe? You say, well, wait a second now, you're doing another turn there. See, the tithe, the tithe was the New Testament, was the was the standard from Abraham right through out history. It's always been there. Now all of a sudden he's got to state it to apply it to our lives. Why would he have to state it to a New Testament Christian? See, here's what I think and here's what I believe. The tithe, again, has always been the standard right on through Abraham. But I also believe that the specific amount of giving is purposely omitted because God did not want to limit his people. You say, what do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. People by nature only do what they have to do and no more usually. You ever notice that? If you say, all you have to do is give me, uh, if you say it's $5 to get into this event, nobody walks up and goes, here's 7 Here's 10 They go, here's 5 That's what you asked for? That's all I'm giving then. See, I believe that, and, and this is important, this is a very important truth. God didn't want to limit his people. People by nature only do what they have to do and no more. And so in the New Testament, New Testament giving is grace giving. That's what we learn in the New Testament, that giving is a grace, just like salvation is a grace, and just like living for Christ is great, a grace, and giving is grace. And when God's grace is engaged in a life, the sky's the limit. In the New Testament, we are given the opportunity through giving to unlock unlimited resources in our lives. What did he say? He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. He says, listen, New Testament Christian, you don't have to be bound by just the tithe. No, you have the opportunity to go far beyond the tithe in grace and by grace. Even as I give you grace to breathe and I give you grace to move forward, I give you grace to win souls and grace to lead others to Christ and grace to to start churches and build works and grace to be involved in my work and to join me as a co-laborer. As I give you grace to have fellowship with me and to bow your knee and to pray and to access me on a regular basis, I give you grace to read my Bible and receive golden nuggets from the fountain of heaven. Listen, I give you that grace. I give you the grace now to not only just give a mere tithe, I give you the grace to go far beyond. That's what he's saying. He's not limiting us now in the New Testament. And yet it's been the standard throughout. Don't you get frustrated as a parent when you have to keep telling your kids the same thing over and over again? I believe God says, listen, why should I even have to tell you this? You've heard it a number of times. That's the place where you begin your giving. Start and get on, the, on board. Let's get it done. And then don't let that be the end. I didn't tell you where to start and end. I told, I'm just telling you the standard is begin and continue. That's what he's saying. People don't like to hear that. But then again, if we were correct, and if we were, we were moving forward properly, we recognized, and as we, we noted earlier, that we are to give as God has prospered us. Man, how much has God really blessed you then? How much of a blessing is that family? I, I appreciated what Mr. Wolf was saying about four wonderful boys. I've met those boys. They're good men. God does those things in our lives. 
Yes, he uses a, a husband and a wife and parents to train them up, but, but they had invested their life in Jesus Christ. And because Jesus Christ loved the house of God and the ministry and the church, they loved the church. And God blessed them for their investment, not just financially, but in every aspect of their Christian existence. Listen, that's what it's about. And as you look over your life, you say, where's God blessed me? I'll guarantee he's blessed you far more than money. And sometimes we limit, again, God. We say, God says, listen, I could have said you need to tithe. Just specifically, that's where it starts, that's where it ends. But God says, no, Abraham, your father in the faith, the father of us all, he was a tither by choice. Nobody forced him to do it. Under the law, we included it in the law. It wasn't the law. It was included in the law. And now, after that, I'm going to go ahead in the New Testament and say, hey, listen, I'm not even going to mention it because you all already know where you ought to start. Because everybody's been doing it. That's the place for you as New Testament believers to get on board, and that's the place to then take off. Blessing is the key to us here. A cheerful giver. God doesn't want you to give because you have to. He wants you to give because you want to. He doesn't want you to give grudgingly, going, oh, here we go again, another check in the basket. No, he wants you to go, another check in the basket and another blessing in God's bank. That's what God wants for us. And again, there's a number of things we could discuss. That's just point number one of my message. <laughs> we had the same problem in Sunday school today, didn't we, gentlemen? But it was fun. I hope this has been fun. But let me ask you this. Let me say this to you. There is nothing more important than giving yourself to Jesus Christ. I had a, the opportunity to teach the men's class. It was great. We had, I had fun at least. I, I, think, I hope they did. But here's what we learned. We learned something very important this morning. We're talking about purity today. And we learned something about purity. I'm going to dig it out because I just want to share it. It's so good. I was going to preach it again tonight, but they'd be bored. I want to tell you these two simple thoughts because it goes along with what we're talking about. See, purity is important. The impact of purity is so powerful. First of all, purity enables... We, we are enjoyed by the Master when we're pure. He can enjoy us when we're clean. But watch this now. We are not only enjoyed by the master, but get this, we are then employed by the master. You know what happens in our lives, and we noted this, sometimes we get the idea that we've got to serve God, and that's how all the blessings of God fall in our life. Can I warn you that we get it backwards? First, we need to be enjoyed by him, before we are employed by Him. We need to be pure in our heart so that God can enjoy fellowship with us and we can enjoy fellowship with Him. We deal with the heart, then we go to the hands. Too many are trying to do with their hands before they settle their heart. And that's why people get bitter in service. And that's why people get angry with pastors and get ticked because they don't get the promotion they think they should have got or the position they should have received. 
That's why people get, take everything so personal amongst their friends and their family members. In, and I talk about their family in the church. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Oh, I don't understand. He said, I got upset because he, no, our hearts are the problem. We be, it begins right here. And let me tell you today, listen, if you today have yet to settle your heart issue with the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've never taken the time to become a child of God by faith in Christ Jesus, you've never received him as your Lord and Savior, acknowledge your sin, of course, acknowledge your guilt before a holy God, and say, God, you're going to have to remove that sin, that wickedness out of my heart. I need you as my Lord, my Savior, and I want you to take me to heaven. I can't do it without you because I'm just a sinner. If you've never done that, let me tell you, you go ahead and tithe all you want. You're going to miss heaven. You go ahead and, and be an usher, or you, you sing in the choir, and you pretend that you're a good Christian. And if you aren't truly saved in your heart of hearts, you are going to miss heaven. Because God's more interested in a relationship with you today than He is your money. Because He don't need your money. He wants you. And today, let me encourage you today, if it I'm really messing up, aren't I, as a pastor? I'm not supposed to say those things after I just taught this stuff. But I'm going to tell you something. My heart, I hope, is God's heart. He wants you today. Are you saved? Do you know Christ? Are you pure in your heart toward the Lord? Does your master enjoy you? Do you enjoy him? And then, only then, are we prepared to be employed by him. Let's get it together. Let's make sure we're saved on our way to heaven today. And then let's make sure that our hearts are pure as believers so that our fellowship is not hindered with our Master and our Savior. Father, we come to you. We thank you for all you've done for us. Bless us in this short time of invitation. We'll thank you and praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed. Right now, there's not even any music. You come quickly. We're not going to waste time today. We're running just a couple of minutes later than normal. We're going to get out of here in just a few moments. But listen, the altars are open today. Do not leave here without settling your salvation first as the music begins. Come on now. I don't know for sure if I died, I'd go to heaven, preacher. I don't have that one settled. I would hope that I was saved. I, I think I'm saved or I think I'd be in heaven, but I can't say for sure. Let me tell you something. I want you to know today that the Lord Jesus Christ is so good that he's already paved the way for heaven for you. You don't have to do anything except just come to him. And if you'll come to him, he will receive you. Won't you settle it? Come on. Don't waste time with God. Don't put off God. Get it done today. Settle it today. Right now. Right now. And you're a child of God? Come on now. He's concerned about his relationship with you.